Welcome to Emmanuel Anglican Church. And I'll say it again. I said at the beginning, uh, this is our last Sunday of the one 10 a.m. service. We go back to two services next week. So uh, let that burn in your mind now. I'll say it a couple more times. Uh, but uh, 9 and 11, okay, next week. Uh, in the meantime, please turn to Isaiah 60. as we are in our last sermon in our sermon series, Spiritual Beacon, Becoming a House of Prayer in the City of Chicago. I have to be very intentional and careful with the promises I make to my kids. If I even respond positively to one of their ideas of like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, saxophone lessons or yeah, oh yeah, we could go ice skating sometime or sure, we can take a father-daughter trip to Chinatown. Um, I won't hear the last of it until I make good on that promise. They'll, they'll tug on my, on my pant leg. I'm not usually wearing a robe at home, but they'll tug on my pant leg or robe if it's a Sunday and be like, Dad, come on, when, when are we going? When are you going to go ice skating? When are we going to go out for ice cream? When are we going to have father-daughter time, Dad, you know, father-son time? I'm like, in a minute, okay, in a second. Like, next week, maybe, and it's like, it's been a minute, It's been a second. Come on. Come on, Dad. They won't let me hear the last of it. The way forward for us as a church to become a spiritual beacon in the city of Chicago, for us to see all of the promises that God gave his people in Isaiah 55 through 60 and the rest of Scripture, is to continually, incessantly tug on the Father's pant leg and say, you promised. And I'm not going to stop asking, and I'm not going to stop tugging until you make good on your promises in our time and in our day. It's not enough to read the words on the page. It's not enough to be captured by their beauty. We as a church will only become the spiritual beacon God has promised for us to be. And the church of Jesus in Chicago And around the world will only be the church that she is called to be unless we do what the Father asks, which is to pray continually, to tug continually on the Father's pant leg and say, make good on your promises. Make good on your promises. Bring them about. So we say, Father, you promised in Isaiah 55 to make your church a house of deep satisfaction where all of our desires find their utter completion to overflow in the presence of the living God. Our desires for everything else pales in comparison, gets reordered, in fact, by partaking in the deep satisfaction of Jesus. Father, you promised to make us a house of prayer for all nations, for our love for you to overflow to the nations. So make it good in our time, tugging on the Father's pant leg, Father, you promised to make us a house of changed lives in Isaiah 57. Make good on your promise. Bring people in who have never known Jesus Christ. Bring people in who have messes and reorder their life and reorder our mess. Change our life. Let this be a place where we can lay down in the grass, as it were, and experience the grace of God. Father, you promised to make us a house of generous justice where our love for you overflows in practical and concrete ways Uh, for the marginalized. You promised that with our own hands, 
that we would break the heavy, oppressive yoke and that we would rebuild the new creation with the power of the Holy Spirit. So as you look back to God's promises in Isaiah in this sermon series, what promises are you praying for? How has your hope been awakened? Because without hope, we won't pray. We'll stop praying if we don't hope in God's promises. If we cynically just move them aside as like this is um, really maybe for a different people or for a different time or it's just all gonna be in the future, then we'll stop praying. And you know what? If we stop praying, if we don't hope and we don't pray, we won't sacrifice together. We'll stop praying together and we won't sacrifice together. We'll just survive alone. We'll get what we can get in the city, whether it be sex or money or power or fame, and we'll just survive We'll just survive alone. We'll just survive with our friend group. But with hope, with the hope of Isaiah, with the hope of the living God, we will sacrifice together. We will pray together. And we'll see God do things that we could not do in our own power. So how are you hoping? How are you tugging on the Father's pant leg? And when he looks down, what do you say to him? My hope is that as we open Isaiah 60, hope would rise even more. That, that our hope would, would come to a rolling boil and that we would pray with all of our hearts like we've never prayed before. And we would pray specifically for the glory of God. So um, we're going to talk about two things today. Number one, our greatest hope, which is the glory of God. And number two, our greatest honor, which is receiving the outsider. So turn to Isaiah 60 and look with me in verse 1 and 2 as it describes the glory of God. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now, one of the most difficult concepts in the scriptures to explain and get a hold of is this concept of the glory of God. What exactly is the glory of God. C.S. Lewis was like, man, is the glory of God luminescence where he just shines really brightly or is it fame? What exactly is the glory of God? To a certain extent, the glory of God is beyond our comprehension that we'll never fully grasp it or identify it because we come from God. He is greater than us and we'll never fully understand him. However, there are some metaphors that scripture ministers to us to help us understand the glory of God. And this is one of these scriptures. Isaiah 60, 1 and 2 talks about darkness covering the earth like, a, like, like it's thick, like the darkness is alive, that it's like a, a thick cotton blanket that just sort of suffocates entire peoples and cultures. Um, imagine living life in utter darkness, that the sun, you can't see the sun at all. And imagine there's no computer screens, there's no electricity, there's, there's not even torches uh, it's like the, you know, the depths of, uh, I don't know, Moriah, whatever that is in Lord of the Rings. There's no light. No light is allowed to exist. It's just darkness. You barely get through. You bump your way through life. You kind of forget when is it nighttime and when is it daytime? When am I supposed to be in bed and when am I supposed to be out of bed? Where's the food? Um, where's work? Where's my car? How do I drive my car without crashing into anybody? If we lived in darkness, just imagine you, you lose all sense of reality and you lose all sense of hope. And imagine what kind of injustices and evils that darkness would just sort of cover over and, and give space for. And just, just getting used to that 
vitamin D deficiency and just getting used to not knowing when it's daytime and when it's nighttime, just sort of getting used to and letting your eyes and your body and, and your whole existence adjust to darkness. Now, imagine being in that kind of darkness and then one day in your town specifically, there was a sunrise. And the sunrise, after years, pierced through all that darkness and those thick clouds and all of a sudden, your entire reality changed. And the first thing that you felt was pain. Just the pain of that searing light, like breaking through the darkness. And like your eyes are like, God, ah, it burns. And it's so, it's, it's so hot. And it's exposing my mess. And it's exposing everything. And, and oh. But then it becomes cleansing. And then it becomes life-giving. There's a substance coming through the sunlight and it's, and it's helping you know when it's daytime, and it's helping you know when it's time to go to bed, and, and your entire life is set free because finally the, the, the sunlight pierces through, and that is what it's like. That's what the glory of God is like when ordinary human beings who belong to God but who have fallen from God, turned from God, when they experience God's glory, that's what it's like in increasing measures. But on the one hand, it can feel like it's a little bit too much, like it's too intense, it's too bright, but over time it brings healing and life causes us to flourish as we were meant to. That's what Isaiah pictures here. He talks about darkness covering the earth and thick darkness the peoples. So it's, it's like more than a metaphor. This is actually the spiritual condition without God. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Lord wants to minister his shining glory to his church. And how does he do that? He does it through Jesus. Jesus is the one who scatters the darkness from before our path. He is the sunrise ministering the love of the Father, the light of the Spirit. He rises like a sunrise over Lake Michigan, burning away the fog clearing the path, forgiving our sins, setting us free. When we look up, we see Jesus. We see our salvation. We see the Father's love, the hope of our resurrection. We see him crucified and risen. He's Lord over sin. He's Lord over death. He scatters confusion. He brings brightness to cover hopelessness and sin. Uh, Isaiah, in this chapter, verse 9, he calls, uh, he calls him the Holy One of Israel. This is so interesting. Jesus is the Holy One, but of Israel. So uh, he brings God's holiness so close that Israel, sinful Israel, disobedient Israel, can, can come close to the glory of God, can touch it, can see it, can follow it, can be healed by it. That's the kind of God that needs to shine over the church in our day. The Holy One of Israel who brings all of God's mercy and love and purity and brightness, but does it in such a way that doesn't kill us, but actually heals us, cleanses us, and nourishes us. Uh, history shows us that while God's presence is always available to us, sometimes the Lord draws near to his people in a way that is palpable, thick, irresistible, and life-giving. He's done it before, and he can do it again. Restored souls in the light of God's glory 
lead to restored marriages, restored churches, restored institutions, restored neighborhoods, restored cities. After the Revolutionary War in our country, um, our nation went through one of its darkest periods to date. In fact, you could make the argument that it was a worse time in America then than it is now. Rates of violence were through the roof at unbelievable levels. Violence, murder, revenge was, 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 was off the charts, as was sexual assault, rape, off the charts. It was terrible. Drinking, like uh, sort of alcoholism, was rampant, much worse than it is today per capita. And there was a hopelessness and a thick darkness covering the United States after we won the Revolutionary War. And this is when Jonathan Edwards began his ministry. It was in this time. And uh, the people of God began to pray, just desperately, like, we've come to the end of ourselves, and, and we need, God's our only hope. God's our only, so they've been crying out and fasting and praying for the glory of God. So what happened was when um, the light of God's presence came in such a powerful way to the United States uh, that it was almost unbelievable. The shift was dramatic. And here's how Jonathan Edwards described it in one of his books. He said, there was a scarcely a single person in the town, young or old, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. In the spring and summer following, the year 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress, as in conviction of sin, as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, and husbands over their wives, and wives over their husbands. The doings of God were then seen in his sanctuary. God's day was a delight. Our public assemblies were beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on public worship. The assembly in general were, from time to time, in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Our public praises were then greatly enlivened. God was then served in our psalmody, in some measure, in the beauty of holiness, in singing his praises. Our young people, when they met, were wont to spend time in talking of the excellency and dying love of Jesus Christ, the glory of the way of salvation, the wonderful, free, and sovereign grace of God, his glorious work in the conversion of a soul, the truth and certainty of the great things of God's word. He did it in the first great awakening. He did it in the second great awakening. He did it again in the, uh, the mid-1800s, and then in the late 1800s after the Civil War, and then in the early 1900s. He's done it before, he did it before Jesus, he did it after Jesus. The glory of God can come to his church in extraordinary ways that can happen again in our time and in our day in a way that only God knows. But every single time that it's come, it's, become, it's come as a result of the church tugging on the Father's pant leg going, you are our only hope. You are our only hope. Do it again, Father. Come in power again. We want your glory. We want your light. Shine on us. We're your church. We're your people. So what keeps us from tasting and expecting the glory of God like this? I think for us Americans, it's because we want so much 
of the credit. We love taking credit for big supernatural things, for big spectacles. We love spectacles. And we want so much of the credit. God's presence is a gift for those who won't take the credit when it comes. God's presence is a gift for those who are desperate for it. So here's what Isaiah says in verse 15. You can turn there in your, in your bulletins. Isaiah 60, 15. It's just a good reminder of like where we've come from, where we're at without God. He says, where, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You know, without the spirit of the living God, this is the church. We, we have nothing to brag about. No, no gift that we have ourselves generated, but only that which we've received. And Israel knew this acutely. They had, because they had turned from God, they had lived in exile for years, and, and they had been kind of like a shelled out town. Like, no one goes there anymore. People look down on it. Like, that's, a, that's like a rundown place. That's kind of a dangerous neighborhood. Like, let's not go there. And that's what Israel was uh, before the Lord visited them with his spirit. But God promised them, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. At the end of verse 16, he says, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. If we as a church become a spiritual beacon, it will be because of God's doing. It will be because he gave us the gift of his spirit. It will be because the Lord beautified us, that he enlivened us, that he visited us. Uh, it will come to pass not because of our strength, but despite our weaknesses. I remember years ago when Laura and I were uh, part of Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, which years later, ended up sending and, and helping to plant Emmanuel Anglican. For years, the vision of Church of the Resurrection was building a sanctuary of transformation, spiritually and architecturally building a sanctuary of transformation. And that was a very clear vision for them for eight years. And for eight years, they fasted and they prayed and they waited for this vision to come about, spiritually and architecturally, literally. And there was a lot of, uh, like, sort of times when they thought maybe this was the time when God was answering their prayer, but it didn't quite work out, and there was, like, a setback, and so they went back to prayer and fasting. And after eight years of prayer and fasting and waiting on God, God finally answered their prayers. And I remember it was just when Laura and I were moving back to Chicago to plant Emmanuel that I took a tour with the staff of Church of the Resurrection of their building, which is in Wheaton, which God miraculously provided for them. And I was, I was so, it went far beyond my imagination back in 2004 of what God could do by 2012. And I was just like, Stuart, this is incredible. What, like, what's going through your mind as we walk through this building? And he looked at me and he said, it is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And if we ever become a spiritual beacon church that see the promises of Isaiah fulfilled in our day, that house the glory of God in such a way that brings changed lives and becomes a house of prayer for the city of Chicago, we'll be saying the same thing. We, we won't be taking credit for it because we'll know it is only something that God could do. 
This isn't something that programs could do as great as programs are. This is not something that production values could do as great as production values are. This isn't something that human talent did as good and important and God created as human talent is. This is because the Lord did it and it is marvelous in our eyes. We need a powerful move of God in our day. And we need to be prepared as a church to utter humility when he answers our prayer And we will know that it is the Lord, our Savior and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Because he came in response to our prayers, not our striving. Because he led us through a valley of tears, giving us a chance to repent of our sin and immaturity. Because when he comes, he will do what we could not do. And we will delight in him. Imagine the day when these verses come true. Verses 19 and 20. Look with me in verses 19 and 20. I want you to imagine that these will ultimately come true in the new creation, and we hope for that, and we wait for that. But imagine the day when it comes true in a special way in our time. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now Isaiah is picturing a day where the glory of God, God's presence is so near and so substantial and so tangible that it outshines the sun and the moon. And again, this is coming in the new creation, but we can taste it now where we taste and know God's presence in Jesus and it satisfies us unlike anything in creation. I know some of you have tasted single-origin coffee served in a pour-over cup at just the right temperature, and it, like, ruins you for Starbucks, doesn't it? And some of you have enjoyed a vintage Burgundy from eastern France, and it, like, ruins you for grocery store red wine, doesn't it? Imagine the day when Emmanuel Anglican is so satisfied by the grace of God, it's so sweet to us, that it ruins us for anything else. Anything else that right now enchants us, we are ruined by the grace of God for those pleasures. It's not that they're, they're bad. They actually come to their proper place because we've tasted the sweetness of the Father's love. We've tasted the grace of Jesus. We've been, in fact, ruined by the filling of the Holy Spirit. It ruins us for other types of filling, because it's so sweet. Imagine the day when money, power, sex, or even ministry, or even security, or world travel, or fitness, or brunch, we, in fact, lose the taste we have for them now. We find that our taste for them has been reordered because all we really want at the end of the day is more of God. Can you imagine that day? In other words, we don't need any more soul nourishments. You know what I mean by a soul nourishment? Where at the end of the day, what you need and want to recharge you and encourage you and keep you going and refresh you is no longer anything in creation. It's now the presence of the living God. I want you to know that as your pastor, this is now all I want. That I'm praying for this more and more. That I'm finding myself tugging on the Father's pant leg going, God, I know that we 
that the soul, that the, as one pastor said, the walls of our soul need to be stronger because if you sent your glory now, we couldn't quite handle it. But I want to be able to handle it as a church. I want the glory of God to rest on us. I want, to, I want that sunrise to cut through any remaining darkness among us. I want us to taste the sweetness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like Jonathan Edwards' church did in the 1700s, and just like countless other churches did, just like the Moravians did, just like the, uh, just like the, the Jesus generation in the 1970s when they tasted the beauty of Jesus, where you just opened your Bible in a coffee shop and people would crowd around you going, do you know about the person of Jesus? What do you know? And just so interested to learn more about the person of Jesus, that that can happen for us in a way that we need it to happen, in a way that Chicago needs it to happen. I want this with all my heart, and I'm tugging on the Father's pant leg because the glory of God is our greatest hope as a church. We can't hope for anything else more than we hope for the glory of God. His presence is the beacon in the spiritual beacon. His glory is the light shining from us, starting with us, reviving our souls, and then shining out into Chicago, bringing an awakening to the culture around us. As the Lord brings us his glory, we then become prepared for our greatest honor, which is receiving the outsider. That's one of the most thrilling realities for the local church, welcoming in the outsider, making a home for our friends and our neighbors to meet Jesus Christ and become integrated in with his body. So the hope that we have in the glory of God is not just for us. Uh, this is the God of the nations, the God the nations is waiting for. And they come, they come to Chicago, they, uh, stepping on something here. They come, they immigrate to Chicago, and they're looking for Jesus. They're looking for the Holy One of Israel. This is the God they've been waiting for. Verse 4 of Isaiah 60, so you have to turn back uh, to Isaiah 60, verse 4. Here's a promise from God. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. So here's what, what's happening. God's people, they're receiving the next generation. Uh, their sons and daughters find them. It's interesting because their sons are from a foreign land, um, and yet somehow this is a family reunion. Their daughters are carried on the hip of, of refugees from another country. Will the church receive these sons and daughters, adopt them, and raise them to love and serve the Lord? Will they baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded? Um, over the last few months, different people unconnected to each other have been sharing an image for me that they, they either dreamed about or they, they received in prayer as they were praying for Emmanuel. And it's this interesting, beautiful image of Emmanuel being like a woman who is very much pregnant very much ready to deliver a baby. And as I've been like, huh, I wonder what that image is all about. Does that mean a church plant? Is that like, what's, what's going on? As I prayed about it, I realized that um, this is very likely, and I invite you to pray about it, an image uh, speaking to the next generation, that the Lord is bringing Emmanuel Anglican more than her fair share of the next generation that we are called to receive, to raise, to steward, and to, to release to serve God all around Chicago and beyond. I realize also that the Lord is answering a prayer that we've been praying since the beginning of our church 
for more people in their midlife or senior citizens. Because we've been praying for more people who can join the work of being spiritual fathers and mothers to the next generation. That we actually need all of the generations uh, so that we can raise up the new generation and so that we can spiritually parent and send out those who once were outsiders, those who once did not have a family or a home. Verse five, um, let's describe what that's like for us to receive that. Why is it such an honor? Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Um, I recently saw some pictures of Brian Hinkle's surprise birthday party. My favorite shot uh, from, this, from this time was the, the picture of him, the, the face he had when he saw all the people that had showed up for his surprise birthday party. It was a look of utter joy and astonishment, of like, oh my goodness, what is happening? It's too much to take in. His expression was radiant. It was, it was thrilled. And this is a picture for us of what it's like to see the streams of the sons and the daughters and the nations and the people streaming into the church. It's a thrilling, heart, it's a thrilling sight where our hearts swell and our expressions become radiant. It's such an honor to welcome them. Verse six and seven, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels from Midian and Ephah, those from Sheba shall come. They bring gold and frankincense, Good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. And they shall come up with acceptance on my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. So here there's this diverse gathering of nations and cultures coming in from all directions into Jerusalem. They don't come as blank slates. They've got their cultures. Um, and you know what? This could be describing our own city of Chicago that we've got lots of refugees coming in from all corner of the globe, coming in with their cultures, coming in with their families, coming in with their stories, looking for what God has for them now that they moved here to Chicago. And as they come, they're a blessing to God, they're a blessing to our church, they're a blessing to the church of Jesus in our city. Verse seven, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Now, this is priestly language. This is describing people's not only coming into the church, not only making the church their home, but actually taking part in the worship of Jesus at the table, taking a meaningful part in leadership. It's a picture of what heaven is like. All nations, tribes, peoples, and language are represented around the throne of the Lamb. So imagine Syrians and, Ira and Iranians and formerly unchurched Chicagoans becoming a part of our church, leading in our church, and the churches that we plant all over the city. Imagine the thrill as new waves of people come seeking the Holy One of Israel in their midst, and they're like, can I encounter God here? Can I know the grace of Jesus here? What is it like to, to taste and see that the Lord is good? Can you show me? Can, can I become a part of this? I just saw an Instagram post from the Patties where uh, the, the missionaries that we support in the Czech Republic and Tyler Patty was leading a, a group of emerging preachers among the young generations of, of native Czech um, young people in their 20s. 
Now here we see just a little bit of a picture of the promises of Isaiah come through as we bring the church and raise up the nations in the home of the nations. We actually send missionaries this time uh, where we're actually bringing the church to them. Imagine not only welcoming in more people here in Chicago, but also as a spiritual beacon church, sending more people like the Patties to raise up the next generation of church leaders. It will be an honor for us. It is an honor for us. When God's presence fills our church, we might call that revival. And when it spills out into the broader culture, into the city, into the nations, we call that an awakening. One way to ask for this honor is to tug on the Father's pant leg and say, Father, would you let me share in the burden of prayer for the nations? Father, would you let me share in the burden for the outsider, whoever the outsider is, whoever they currently defined, who do you have a burden for? We say, Father, would you give me a burden of prayer so that this becomes true of our church? We're praying for the outsider. We're praying for God's glory and presence among us. We're praying for the sons, the daughters, the nations to come streaming in. We're praying for people to be converted and restored to their true self in Christ. We're praying for a new generation to be raised up and for new churches to be led by them throughout our city. We are praying to become a spiritual beacon where we are a house of prayer in the city of Chicago. And we're praying for awakening. We're praying, we're, we're tugging on the Father's pant leg and saying, you promised, Dad. You promised, Father. You promised to send your spirit you, you promised to bring people to your son. You promised to lift high the son of God in the city of Chicago, that all would be drawn to him. And we want to see that in our day, Father. We want to see that in our day. Someone, uh, someone else, actually, uh, not the one sharing the image of a pregnant woman, someone else, not part of our church, uh, I asked for prayer for our church from a group of people recently at a church planting gathering and someone in our diocese prayed. They said, Lord, would you start a new Chicago fire? And would you let, but this time it's a fire of prayer. The whole city alive with the presence of God. But would you let Emmanuel Anglican be like Mrs. O'Leary's cow? Knocking over the, you know, whatever it might be. Basically, the fire starts here. The prayer starts here, and whatever starts here begins to spill out to the, the whole city, not in a way that we take credit. It wouldn't be the Lord. It would be hype, and we're not after hype. More than anything else, we want the visitation of the glory of God in our day so that we can become a spiritual beacon and that all the outsiders that come in can taste and see that the Lord is good. May we be that spiritual beacon. May we be that pregnant woman. May we be Mrs. O'Leary's cow, whatever we need to be for God to do his will in Chicago as it is in heaven. Let's be that church and let's tug on the Father's pant leg until he brings it about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.